Well, good morning and welcome to New Life Dresher's virtual worship service. My name is Anthony Gamage. I'm the lead pastor here where we exist to know Jesus and make him known. Uh, if you are interested in hearing more about us or, or being alerted when we start meeting again in person, please feel free to text connect to the number at the bottom of your screen. And for those of you who are a part of the New Life community, uh, just to make you aware, next week we're looking to the week of the 5th or Sunday, July 5th, we're looking to have what we're calling a soft reopening of the church building. Uh, and so what that means is, is you need to keep your eyes on your email uh, for next week as we uh, look to communicate all that's coming uh, here in the next week or two. Um, also, uh, just to be aware, uh, the format that you're watching here will look a little bit different next week. We're going to continue with streaming. Uh, we're going to continue with online versions of this, but uh, the quality will probably dip a little bit in the early going as we look to still purchase equipment and go through the learning curve of actually doing live streaming versus producing. And so just making you aware of that. Uh, but as we head into the text today, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 7 to 18. And as we jump in, let me pray for us as we get going. Well, Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for walking with us through uh, this challenging season where our weaknesses have been revealed to us in remarkable ways. Uh, Lord, I pray that through uh, your word, through the preaching of your word this morning, that we will see your surpassing power. Uh, Lord, as you use uh, <laughs> jars of clay like myself, uh, Holy Spirit, would you uh, protect my words? Would you impact our hearts in deep, meaningful ways? And we love you. Thanks for being with us today, we pray uh, in your name. Amen. Well, Sir Oliver Franks held a very important position at a very important time. He served as the British ambassador to the United States right after World War II. Uh, and at the beginning of the Cold War, uh, it was also a time where uh, NATO was being formed. And so uh, he had quite a job. <laughs> and as you can imagine, as all of these things were happening, there was much communication that went on between uh, the president of the United States and the uh, British prime minister. Uh, and so there was a lot of communication between Washington, D.C. and London. So how do you think he got some of these messages across the Atlantic? Well, he didn't use the phone because he knew the phone was going to be bugged. Uh, people were going to be tapped in and, and be able to steal state's evidence pretty uh, quickly. Uh, state's evidence probably wasn't the right word. He, they would steal information pretty quickly. Uh, and so he actually had what was called a diplomatic bag uh, that he would put on a, a person, right? So he would put the message in the diplomatic bag, close it, lock it up, and then they would fly it to and from D.C. to London across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, Sometimes there was really important information, critical, urgent, uh, that he needed to get across. And, and he knew that there was a danger of people knowing this diplomatic bag existed. Uh, and they would be gunning for that person. And they could steal it, attack them and steal it. Uh, and so do you know how he got the most urgent information across the Atlantic? He put it in a plain envelope and mailed it. That's right. The lowly envelope carried in it some of the most important information of an entire generation. And then that paints a, a pretty good picture of what we're going to be talking about here this morning. I, I want to read for you the last verse we discussed last week from 2 Corinthians 4, 6, uh, and then the first one, uh, verse 7, that really launches us into and is really the thesis for what we're going to look at here this morning. Verse 6, it says this, Paul says, For God, who said, let, line, let, let light shine out of darkness, which is creation language, right? Let there be light, has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God 
and not to us. And so here's what he's saying, a couple of words to discuss. First off, he says, we have this treasure. All right, so here's the treasure that he's talking about. This treasure is the permanent and transforming glory that we talked about last week of the new covenant of the person of Jesus Christ, of which Paul, by the mercies of God, we said last week, has been made a minister of and is grinding for that glory. Right? That glory of Jesus Christ has been put in him, he says, a jar of clay. So here's what a jar of clay is. Jar of clay was ubiquitous. It was everywhere in the ancient Middle Eastern culture. It was inexpensive. It was easily broken. It had no real intrinsic value to it at all. Uh, no glory, if you will, in and of itself. One of my friends, Ashley Frierson, who, let me just give you an aside real fast. There's probably no human being I've learned more about this passage we're talking about today uh, than Ashley Frierson. Ashley Frierson was a woman who was a member of this church for many years who lost her earthly battle with cancer here almost two years ago. But she uh, loved this passage of Scripture. She taught on it at Women's Bible Study. In fact, I commend it highly to you. You can go to newlifedresher.org, drop down resources, Women's Bible Study, October 2013. But, but the way Ashley always referred to jars of clay is saying, hey, we're all cracked pots, right? We're all frail. We're all weak. If nothing else, hasn't this pandemic season exposed that we are all remarkably frail? We're emotional roller coasters. Uh, we depend on everything else, right? We are, we are not independent at all, right? Health, stock market, whatever it may be, we are totally dependent and weak creatures. We're cracked pots. We're the lowly envelopes, right? And he says, the reason God puts this treasure in jars of clay was verse 7 to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And isn't that great? Because usually, if we think we have any sort of glory, we become glory hounds and we become prideful and say, look at how awesome I am. That's just how humans are, right? Post-Genesis 3. But what Paul is saying is, is we need to be reminded that the surpassing power, right? Hyperpower is, if you read it, it's kind of how it comes across, belongs to God and not to us. And his hyperpower, really I call this a superpower, is his ability to both reveal his purposes and to carry them out. Again, if nothing else, this pandemic has shown us that we can come up with all the goals and desires and plans in the world, but all it takes is one measly pandemic to totally change it. And God is saying, I have the hyperpower to not only communicate my will to you, but to actually carry it through. The thesis of this entire sermon today is that God puts the most glorious hope of Jesus Christ into weak vessels, lowly envelopes, jars of clay, cracked pots, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now, here's the cool part. In the midst of our weakness, God redefines it for the Christian. You know, even these earthen vessels, they were used in the ancient, ancient Middle Eastern times to hide precious household goods. The Dead Sea Scrolls were stored in clay pots. And so uh, they essentially take on the value of what's been put inside of them. And what God is saying is, I have put my glory inside of you, and my glory oozes out of you, right? Out of your cracked pots. All right, so let's look at verses 8 to 12 in this picture of powerful weakness. Verse 8 says this. It says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live 
are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, for that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. All right, so verses 8 and 9 is essentially Paul saying, I'm a jar of clay, and here's the weakness illustrated. Here's how you can see it in my life. And so in verse 8, he says, I am afflicted, but not crushed. Afflicted is the same term that you could use as the word pressed. And so imagine being in a crowd surrounded by people and the crowd kind of pressing in on you, right? To the point where you're like, oh man, uh-oh, when's this going to let up, right? Paul's saying that's, that's how we feel as broken pots. But he's saying in the midst of that, in the midst of being hard-pressed, we're not actually crushed, right? And so an ancient picture of this would be the Israelites at the Red Sea, right? They're at the Red Sea, they're turning around, and here comes the army, pressing against them, pressing them against the water, and they need Jesus to let them out. Well, that's the uh, not crushed part, that there's deliverance that happens in the midst of it. He says in verse 8, we're perplexed but not driven to despair. Have you ever been in a season of suffering where you feel totally and utterly perplexed? You uh, essentially are at a total loss is what that means of words as to what to do next. Maybe it's as you go through a medical crisis and you are paying bill and bill and do I have to pay this? Should I not pay this? You call the insurance to get, uh, to get approvals and to, get, uh, to be like, why am I paying this much for here? And why do I have five doctors? Right? Uh, maybe it's making huge decisions about your kids that you think are going to shape the whole rest of their lives. Maybe it's an intense relational decision. Maybe it's a decision whether or not to shut the doors of your business because you've been taking on too much debt during the pandemic. And I don't know if you've ever felt it, but, but when I get overwhelmed with question after question after question after question, I just go, done, I'm out. I'm in a total loss. I cannot make, I cannot pick what type of cheese I want on my sandwich, right? Totally shut down. And that's where Paul's saying, he's like, yeah, we are perplexed. But he says, but we're not driven to despair. The Greek word is apareo for perplexed, and then it's ex apareo for not driven to despair. So he's saying we're, we're perplexed, but we're not, we're not extra perplexed. We're not despairing in that moment. He goes on, he says, we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. Persecuted is pretty straightforward. He's saying uh, we are being persecuted for our faith, and if you know Paul's story, he's been stoned, he's had to sneak out of uh, different cities under the cover of night. He's had to say goodbye to friends in tearful ways and uh, eventually he loses his life. But but that idea of, of being persecuted means uh, to be sought after or hunted. And I know there's some of you in this church right now who are being persecuted. The mob has hunted you down for your faith and is persecuting you in the court of public opinion. And Paul's saying, I've been there. He's saying, but in the midst of that, I have not been forsaken. It's the idea of I haven't been abandoned, left behind, or deserted, right? That term there, not forsaken, is the same one used in Matthew 27 where Jesus on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The picture here to me is someone who's on the run with a protector next to them, right? Watching their back. Uh, My family uh, and I have been watching this really corny TV show from 2007 to 2012 called Chuck. Chuck is a computer nerd who had, uh, you know, a big time top secret CIA secrets beamed into his head. Uh, and now all the bad guys are hunting him, right? But he hasn't been abandoned because there's a CIA and an NSA agent who are protecting him at all times. And if it was just up to him, he'd be toast. But because he's not been abandoned, uh, he can continue to, to press on. Struck down but not destroyed, verse 9. That's this idea that you've been hurt badly, you've been thrown down but you haven't been utterly destroyed. I call this the Jason Bourne principle, right? So Jason Bourne, if he gets shot 
or if he gets in a car wreck, and if he lands in a body of water, even though he has been struck down, you know he's going to come back, right? He's not yet gone. And so that's what Paul's essentially saying. He's like, in the midst of all this persecution, I've been hurt, (laughs) but I'm not going to perish. He goes on in 10 to 12, and he really redefines weakness. He restates this idea of the jars of clay in a different way. Verse 10, he says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So he's saying being a jar of clay actually displays Jesus Christ in a unique way. Uh, The first is this idea of displaying Christ's own weakness when he put on flesh and dwelt among us, right? Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest, and that high priest earlier on is Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. So in many ways, what what this passage is saying is, is, hey, Jesus Christ has actually put on weakness as well. He's undergone the same sorts of temptation uh, and, and, and emotions that we feel when we go through suffering. Here's the caveat. He hasn't sinned in it. And for me, when I read this, I go, yeah, but God, that's sometimes the hardest part. It's that sin that makes me feel the most weak. So, so he hasn't really experienced what I've experienced to the full, right? C.S. Lewis gives an illustration that's helped me with this. He, he gives this illustration of a man walking against a strong windstorm. So think Jim Cantori when a hurricane comes to town on the Weather Channel, right? Um, the wind of temptation gets strong enough that, that human beings will eventually lay down right? We'll give up. We'll give in to the temptation of the wind. We'll give in. uh, And and essentially, by giving in, we are not going to know what it's going to feel like to uh, persevere for 10 minutes longer. But Jesus, on the other hand, never lays down in the wind of temptation. He endures all of our temptations and testings without ever giving in, without ever laying down. Therefore, he actually knows the strength of temptation better than we do. Only he knows the true cost of persevering. And here's the second reason this gives me hope, is that the one who shares in our weakness, in our pain, actually doesn't need rescuing. He's the one who actually rescues us and saves us from our ultimate weakness. We know that because he rose again in the resurrection. He defeated sin and death. And so he becomes our worthy suffering rescuer. He was crushed. He was driven to despair. He was abandoned by his father on the cross. But because he defeated sin and death, he can also be our source of grace and mercy. Now, Anthony, I think you remember you telling me in chapter one that Paul uh, was at a point of suffering where he was despairing of life. He felt like he had the sentence of death, right? Absolutely. Paul used those very words just a couple chapters ago in chapter one. What we have here is the benefit of Paul's hindsight, of him experiencing Jesus through it and on the other side of it. And and for me, it's been comforting to go, there is another side to all of these emotions that I feel as I walk through suffering. And so here's what I want you to hear me say. Persevering in trials doesn't mean we don't grieve, right? It doesn't mean that as we face temptation, we face it with some some sort of uh, cold stoicism. I think, I think we need to grieve. 
just like Jesus grieved at the tomb of Lazarus as he saw the trial and the effects of sin and death. But rather, in the midst of our trials, the call is to locate Jesus with us in that moment because he has not abandoned us. How does that bring you hope in areas where you currently are feeling crushed, despairing, abandoned, or destroyed? I mean, take a hard look at Jesus and what he's undergone, his heart, how he's persevered, and how he is rescuing us to the utmost. And how does that help you persevere in the midst of feeling crushed, abandoned, shut down, and destroyed? Here's another illustration that's helped me. Uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, she's a woman who was paralyzed, I think at the age of 17, diving into the Chesapeake Bay, and she's gone on to have just a profound impact uh, on uh, those who are suffering uh, for the sake of Christ. And she writes in her book, When God Weeps, she gives this picture of uh, an artist in Florence, Italy, who uh, asked the great Renaissance sculptor Michelangelo uh, to look at this big block of marble and say, hey, what do you see when you see this big block of marble? Michelangelo stood back and and looked at the big square block and he rubbed his chin thoughtfully and he replied, I see a beautiful form trapped inside and it's my responsibility to take my mallet and chisel and chip away until the figure is set free. She goes on to say, the heavenly father is our sculptor. He wants through his chiseling and chipping away to release his son in us so that people can see Christ as he works. And so he uses affliction like a hammer and trouble like a chisel and he chips and cuts away at us through trials to reveal Jesus' image in you and me. God chooses as his model, his son, Jesus Christ. So as we face weakness, illness, death, joblessness, childlessness, loss of friendships and loneliness, financial troubles, depression, troubles with our children, there's hope that God is with us He meets us in our weakness. He redefines it in the life of the Christian by using it to display his power and making us look more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. Here's a second point for today, loving alignment. There's a loving alignment that happens. And I want you to just, we're going to take a peek at verse 13. Paul says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe. And so we also speak. Here's what's happening here. Paul's saying, I'm going to continue to speak of the glory of God, even though suffering is coming at me. Because of what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. Well, that's in quotes, which means we need to dig a little bit deeper as to what he's referring to. And he's actually pointing back to a song written by David in Psalm 116. And so he gives this one snippet. Let me, let me read you the full verse. Psalm 116.10 says, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. That I am greatly afflicted is left off here, but that gives us so much more context about what Paul is actually referring to. You see, for the original hearers who uh, many were of Jewish descent, they probably heard that line and the song, some of the lyrics might have popped in their head. That probably happens to you all the time, right? You'll hear a couple of words and you'll start singing the song and you'll know what the message of the rest of the song may be. That happened to us this week in our family as we uh, said goodbye to some dear friends who moved out of the area and uh, one of my kids said, all right, we need to go walk down to their house and say goodbye one last time. 
Uh, and, and all of us immediately got quiet, looked down at the ground, and just kind of started tearing up. Why? Well, if you remember a number of weeks ago when we finished the book of Deuteronomy, there was a, uh, a song that I referenced called One Last Time from the musical Hamilton. Uh, it's when George Washington is saying goodbye, and he's telling Hamilton, let's teach him how to say goodbye. And it is just this emotionally beautiful but heavy song. And so the moment one of my children said that term, we all felt the weight of what that actually meant because it was attached to the rest of the song. Can I give you a glimpse of what the rest of that song is that Paul was referring to that David was singing? David was going through deep affliction. But in the midst of it, he says this, the first verse, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. And that's just a snippet of that psalm. But, but what it is, is Paul saying that one little verse is flooding back to where David was facing affliction, yet David saw the love of his God. And he was interpreting his afflictions through that. And his first words is, I love the Lord. That love for the Lord is the context in which Paul writes these following words in verses 16 to 18. So we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, Paul is saying, because I know the love of the Lord, because I am interpreting the afflictions that I am going through, through the lens of his love, I don't lose heart. It totally rearranges how he uh, interprets what's happening in his life. Because he's looking through the lens of God's love for him, he says, I'm not going to lose heart. And then he gives three contrasts that are totally uh, contrary, if you will, to what our culture holds before us. The first thing is he says, though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. Friends, for us, that's usually not how we're trained to interpret things. We live in the, in the age of, of, of Botox and tummy tucks and crossfitting until we explode and, and so on and so forth because we were just trying to, to stave off this wasting away. But Paul's saying, hey, even as I see these wrinkles and these scars and feel the aches and the pain and the illness, guess what? I know that the inner me, my heart, my soul is actually being renewed. In a way, I wonder if he's thinking, the wrinkles are proof. The scars are proof that God's at work in my heart. That term renewed is a passive verb, which means it's something that's being done to Paul. Paul's not doing it. And we call that a divine passive, which means God is at work renewing Paul. That's how he interprets his wrinkles. Verse 17 is the most mind-blowing, where he says this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now again, I don't ever want to be flippant with our pain. 
But as I think about Paul, man, this brother, I've said it before, he suffered shipwrecks and, and, and everything else, loss of friends and, and almost loss of life, right? Stone till they thought he was dead and then they uh, walked away and he got up. He suffered. And he calls that light and momentary affliction. Light meaning insignificant and easy to bear. Momentary meaning it's immediate. Affliction, that same pressing in. But he's saying that is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that's going to come. I just can't even fathom that. I mean, I think of the most painful moment in my life, and what Paul is saying is that is light and momentary compared to what will come. He, he's not being terse. He's not being insensitive. He's saying, no, no. <laughs> I'm not going to look at the hammer and the chisel. I'm going to look at the sculptor and say, he is much bigger and more beautiful, and what is to come is absolutely awe-inspiring. Ashley said this in her talk when she talked about this. She said, uh, you know, Eugene Peterson in the message interprets this passage as the heaviest things we will face are but small potatoes, right? As we consider it through the love of our Savior and what is to come. But she said that's only if we interpret it through the lens of Jesus. Without Jesus, the things that we face will feel like forever. We will be crushed. We will feel abandoned. It will feel like a potato company came and dumped their inventory in our living room, right? But there's just something about fixing our eyes on Christ that makes it lighter. The last thing he says is the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. That, that just means um, things are just passing through that we see, but there is an unseen reality that we live our lives for that's to come. It says we look not to in verse 18, and that's just this idea of we don't sit and contemplate on the transient things. We contemplate that which is forever. Friends, suffering and weakness slows us down to assess and realign our loves, to see where we might be focused on the outer, the momentary, the fleeting, because those things will disappear, and if that's where our hope is, it will crush us. But Paul's saying there is something far greater. These things loosen our grasp, grasp on what is fleeting, and grow us in our grasp of the great power and the eternal love of Christ our Savior. Where is God using your weakness to realign you to God's powerful work in you and to create in you a longing for what is eternal and permanent? I'm going to steal from Ashley's talk one more time. She tells the story of her parents, Paul and Jill Miller, uh, who went to a camp that uh, Johnny Erickson Tata put on um, uh, Johnny and friends, they do a lot of work with special needs kids. And, and this camp in particular that their family goes to was praying a lot for Ashley as she was going through uh, some of her harder seasons. And so um, they said, it'd be nice if you come up and you just thank them uh, for praying for them. And, and so she said, one night there was a talent show and this young man got up, he was in a wheelchair, he has cerebral palsy, uh, and he got up and he was going to play the trombone. But he wasn't able to do all of it on his own. And so uh, his older brother walked up there, and, and he stood at the back near the mouthpiece, and he was the one who was blowing. Uh, and then the younger brother was on the slide, and, and he was the one who was kind of uh, moving the slide to create the notes. And so as they worked together and played, they played this beautiful song of I Love You, Lord. She said one of the most profound moments is, is to see the joy on the younger brother's face as he was making these beautiful notes in this song to the Lord. And she said, but what was even more beautiful than that was the smile and the joy on the older brother's face as he saw his younger brother experiencing 
being able to create that beautiful music. Friends, God is our older brother, taking joy in using our weakness to make his beautiful gospel music. In doing so, he redefines our weakness in displaying his son through us and lovingly realigning our hearts to his eternal glory. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, we are jars of clay. Whether we know it or not, we are weak vessels. We are the lowly envelope. But you and your glorious plan have seen fit to put the beauty of the gospel in us who have turned to you in faith. Lord, help us to lean into our weakness and your power. We pray that the gospel will go forth from us. We pray that you will comfort us in our affliction. And Lord, we just thank you for this passage. Go with us this week, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen.